Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, Episode 120, A Call to Honor Freedom. Recently, in talking about the Vietnam War, Louis Menarn, a writer for The New Yorker, said the following, Political and military leaders misunderstood the enemy's motives. They misread conditions on the ground, and they tried to beat an unconventional fighter with conventional tactics. They massacred civilians. They pursued strategies that seemed designed to produce neither a victory nor a settlement, only stalemate. In the first three and arguably four years of the Welsh Rebellion, it would be easy to argue that the same could be said of Henry IV. Few could have foreseen that one of the major powers in the world, England, would be brought to heel by a former military underling fighting with few men and fewer chances. Much like the war in Southeast Asia, things were teetering on the verge of falling completely out of control. Across the old principality, most of the countryside was ungovernable. Even in the marches, English control did not extend very far outside the towns which they had either taken over or built. While Flewellen had won famous victories against the English a century and a half earlier, at that time the English control and government was not everywhere in Wales. They did not have the defenses or the manpower that they'd had in the lull of a hundred years' war. Even then, when Edward or his father Henry set their minds to it, they at least could focus on Gwyneth and basically ravage the power base of the Welsh prince. But in this case, how do you whack a mole who does not want to be hit, who can hide anywhere they want? Worse yet, by trying to do so and then failing, you give aid and comfort to him. We'll be discussing a lot about tactics and medieval warfare in this episode and many more to come. And just be aware that in part of that, there will be some comparisons made to what happened in Vietnam. But of course... This is not a one-to-one scale here. While the English are powerful, they are not a superpower. But there are comparisons that we can make on how insurgencies win wars and how larger, more powerful states can lose them. Henry also had other issues that were now coming to roost in England. The Percys were, as we mentioned previously, firmly in the camp of declaring Henry a false king, They had a large collection of issues which we will now discuss, some of which we have mentioned previously in previous episodes. These include the king's failure to pay wages due to them for defending the Scottish border. We'll touch more on that later. The king's favor towards George de Dunbar, a powerful Scottish lord who had sided with Henry against the other Scottish lords. The king's increasing promotion of his son, Prince Henry, as military authority in Wales. This was driven home on March 8, 1403, when Prince Henry, at the ripe old age of 16, was given overall command in the Welsh War. Keeping in mind that Hotspur was now in his 40s by this point, an experienced commander in the field, with a massive resume, including a huge victory against the Scottish, the Percys had been carrying out the Northern War in Wales on their own financial dime, and likely Hotspur expected to see that effort rewarded, as did his father. And the things that we had mentioned previously, of course, were including the king's demand that the Percys hand over the Scottish prisoners, 
the king's failure to put an end to Oenglindor's rebellion through a negotiated settlement, and the king's failure to ransom Henry Percy's brother-in-law, Sir Edmund Mortimer, whom the Welsh had captured in June of 1402, again, as we had previously discussed. The Percys were also miffed that, as they were supporters of the Bolingbrokes through the hard times, during the point when Richard had exiled him, and they had stayed with him when he returned, and were a part of those who had worked with him to take the kingdom away from Richard in the first place, they must have felt that they were owed some recompense. The Percy power in these circumstances, combined with their increasing military successes, likely emboldened them in the face of Henry's rather pathetic attempts to end the Welsh War. Depending on whether you agree with the conspiracy theories or not, most academics firmly do not. Percy may have started to work with Glendur during the negotiations over his brother-in-law as early or as late as 1402. By 1403, with the Percys as upset and embittered as they were, they then decided to start demanding payment for outstanding debts from 1399, amounting to £20,000, an exorbitant figure in the 1400s, and an amount that would have mostly broke the King of England, and that particularly unfunded king was not about to pay anyway. Most have stuck with the reality that likely it was a collection of these grievances topped off with the elevation of the prince that created a pile of straw that broke the camel's back. The Percys may not have been in Glendur's camp, but one has to think that the enemy of my enemy kind of creates its own set of alliances. With Prince Henry ensconced as the commander of the Welsh War, he had prepared in May to move against Glyndor. Part of this reason was for necessity. Glyndor, with the help of Breton and French forces, likely mercenaries, were able to launch an attack on one of the strongest fortifications in Britain, almost taking the Carnarvon Castle. They do, however, take a number of casualties here. This is not a victory for Glyndor by any means. However, the Bretons did take on the English fleet in the Irish Sea to try and ward off reinforcements. The English were able to relieve the castle, and as I said, Glyndor did not go away unscathed from that. Since the beginning of February, Glyndor had turned from simple raids of sticking and moving from place to place, wrecking lesser protected areas, and attacking the last vestiges of English authority in the countryside to attacking its fortified towns. These assaults were generally little more than temporary sieges which kept the English screaming for help across the coastal castles and kept them chasing the Welsh, trying desperately to relieve each of these sites rather than carry on offensive measures throughout the spring and into the summer of 1403. Whether due to finances or logistics, the English were unwilling to try and carry on the war into the countryside and sacrifice its protected castles. Probably the embarrassment of losing Conwy had hung over their thinking. Also, if they lose control of those fortified towns, it means that they would not be able to protect their citizens in any form, something that would obviously start to sap morale and leave the English reeling across the country. Because, of course, as messages got back to the English nobility and the English uh, peasantry, they would certainly be less and less willing to go fight a war where 
death and destruction would be the only thing awaiting them. Again, you can look at this as very similar to Vietnam, where the American military were able to control cities and towns quite easily, but villages and the countryside were almost completely ungovernable. For the most part, the South Vietnamese were incapable of actually managing on their own, and largely the American military could not carry out in detail uh, successful rooting out of a lot of this problem. Now, of course, we can discuss this till the cows come home, but this is not a Vietnam War podcast, but it's just to kind of understand at least the basis of some similarity, give you some concept of something that would match something we'd know about today. Carnarvon, Harlech, and Aberystwyth castles and their towns were threatened by the Welsh during the spring and summer of 1403. English garrisons started to call for help almost immediately, which meant sending troops to relieve them, either by sea or through marching them through dense forests and mountains and hills. This, of course, gave Glyndor more and more ability to range across the country, and because the best response by the young prince effectively turned into burning down Glyndor's houses in Powys, it wasn't very successful. The muted response by the English likely gave Glyndor something he needed. Nobles across Wales were now flocking to his banner. They were not simply staying out of the fight anymore, where previously they may have silently supported him or silently supported the English, but did neither. They were now starting to choose sides. Some would, of course, join the English, as we've mentioned previously, but significant figures in Wales during this period were now fully on board for the long haul, and these were not just from the Principality. There was areas in the marches that were now starting to whole, whole cloth join in with Owen and, and his forces, which shows you just how significant this movement turned into. One such individual was Henry Don of Kidwelly. Don was considered to have been a wealthy townsman or steward in Kithwelly to this point, a place which he would understand intimately and obviously would have a lot of understanding of that neighborhood of South Wales. Owen would reach out to him and in a letter sent at some point in 1403, ask him to join him to protect, in quotes, the Welsh race. The letter itself had overtones not of a military commander or not as an equal or even someone slightly above him, but rather as a king calling his nobles to battle. Owen's letter says, We command, require, and entreat that you will be sufficiently prepared to come to us with the greatest force possible, to the place that you hear we are, burning our enemies by destroying them during the march, and by this, by divine aid, shall take place shortly. And do not forget this, as you would wish to have your freedom and honor in the future. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or vegan and veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? 
Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Owen previously was not one of the many. Now he was one above all. There is no mistaking that the Prince of Wales was truly taking to that title now. He may not have yet declared for all to hear, but it was obvious he was assuming more and more monarchical control over his area of influence. This was not lost on the English in Wales, as many behind their castle walls saw the Welsh citizens heading for Glyndor. The war was taking a very dark turn for the English ability to control events. For the Welsh, it was likely a time of hope and heady inspiration, a time when things kept going better and better, and in the midst of this was Hotspur. We now return to the other side of the Welsh border, as Hotspur, Henry Percy, and his father gather men through the summer preparing to take on Prince Henry, likely to capture the young prince and to force the king from the throne to save his son, or even possibly to get the king to come out and defeat him with a combined level of forces. Some, in some of the uh, uh, documents and, and some of the interpreters of said documents writing nowadays, claim that he had Glyndor on his side, but as we'll see, it's not fully sure that that is the case. They're not working as allies probably would under normal circumstances. This is not uh, how, you know, people taking on Henry III were dealing with him, where combined uh, nobles from England and nobles from Wales were actually launching assaults against him. This was more of what looks to be an independent effort alongside of Glyndor's efforts. And, of course, as we mentioned earlier, the Percys lined up their grievances, among which the Percys now claimed they had only supported Henry in 1399 on the understanding that he only sought to reclaim his confiscated lands and that they had no idea he intended to usurp the throne. 
an obvious lie, but rather a convenient one, to be sure. They also accused Henry of starving Richard to death in his castle at Pontefract. The Percys now supported the Earl of March, their in-law, the younger Edmund Mortimer, as the rightful heir to the throne, as I mentioned previously, also a stronger had a stronger claim to the throne than Henry did, and that might generally be right in these cases, but the reality of might usually matters more than right. In June, the Percys gathered forces in and around Chesser, along with George Earl Douglas, a captive of the Battle of Homeland Hill from the previous year, but now allied with Percy's. Hotspur headed towards Shrewsbury to join forces with other rebels. Some Welsh troops were said to have joined him or were going to be joining him, but there's a lot of doubt in academic circles that this was ever coordinated by Glyndor. Glyndor at this point is fighting in South Wales, nowhere near Shrewsbury, so it's hard to understand how these could be equivalented. The prince's forces were stationed at Shrewsbury as a staging ground for attacks on Wales, but this small force would be unlikely able to withstand an attack from the combined forces of the Earl of Northumberland, Hotspur, and whatever Welsh forces they could gather. Meanwhile, in Wales, Glyndwr and a sizable force of men moved on English towns in Carmarthen, and a town which had been the centre of English administration in the southwest and the seat of marcher control since the days of Llewellyn. On July 3rd, Henry Don had joined his lord Owen in an attack on the old seat of Doithbarth, attacking the Dainfri castle. Three days later, they attacked and took Carmarthen and its castle, which they would hold until King Henry arrived to relieve it a month later, but by then they'd actually burned the town. These raids across the southwest meant that Glyndor was in, as we mentioned, no position to offer concerted support for Percy, which would have been the first bad sign for the Earl and his son. The king was now in the field and was looking to support his heir in Shrewsbury. The Scottish marcher lord George Dunbar advised the king to intercept Hotspur before he could join forces with Glyndor or even his father's troops. The race for Shrewsbury was won by the king, who reached the town shortly before Hotspur on July 20th. Percy was now isolated on the north side of town, with the River Severn and the king's army between him and possible reinforcements from Wales. Withdrawing from the town, Percy spent the night some three miles northwest of Shrewsbury in the village of Berwick. The king's forces had advanced out of Shrewsbury on that Saturday, and Percy had hurriedly left Berwick and headed away from the river towards Harlescott. They ended up camping and trying to figure out some sort of settlement with the king at this stage. The two sides would collide eventually after attempts to negotiate went nowhere on that Saturday. The fighting was fierce and both sides were bloodied. Hotspur was killed and there are a lot of apocryphal stories on how that happened, including a very unbelievable one discussing one-on-one -on -one combat with the crown prince, according to Shakespeare, but that's almost completely false. The most believable chronicle suggests that Hotspur led a vicious counterattack against the king's line, trying to kill Henry. They did reach and take the king's standard, but at some point Percy had died in the melee, and the fight went out of his side due to this death. 
Prince Henry himself had been hit by an arrow to the face, the arrow being lodged in his face, and after that shot had meant that he had to be removed from the battlefield and suffer under some battlefield medicine in order to remove it before any more serious injury or infection could actually get to the prince, but it would take him out of action for quite some time after that. The loss of the Percys and their forces was a blow to both sides. For Owen, it meant that he had lost a powerful ally. For Henry, it meant he had been diverted from dealing with Glendor and would find it difficult to launch any real challenges to Glendor in 1403. He would be dealing with wounds from the battle for some time to come. Thomas Percy, the Earl, would be executed and drawn and quartered, as would the dead Hotspur, who had had his head posted on the entrance to York, so that those in the area where the Percys were from would acknowledge that he was dead and not claim that he had still survived. This effectively is something I've referred to as more or less the first phase of the rebellion. It's this point where we see both sides having fought what amounts to an internal war, a war between rebels and those who are on the side of the government. This stops being the case after this point. This will be the last we will see of just an English internal conflict, and we'll start to head towards what would be interpreted as an actual proper war, one that has far-reaching consequences for both the English, the Welsh, and the French, and the Hundred Years' War that would pick up a pace after this war ends. The cost and consequence of all this is, is that the Percys, who were a rich and fairly wealthy family, thanks to their conquests and just general land, would have that land slowly be peeled away and given to more and more of Henry's loyalists. This, of course, would be great if you're a loyalist, but certainly would set more grievances in place. As we've mentioned before, and as I would hope would be obvious throughout this podcast, Henry IV is not well-beloved, not anything more than the cantankerous man from everything we've seen. And aside from a few academics who've tried to redeem his his uh, character, they're from reading the documents, from reading the, the things on the ground, it's hard to give him any sort of redemption story. It feels an awful lot like Henry is an irascible, cantankerous individual who's not really worth redemption. And really, he's the reason why he ends up with this revolution on his hands and honestly probably cost the English far more than just this rebellion, both in finances and in men that they couldn't afford to lose on both sides, really. Because remember, up to this point, the Welsh had actually been a part of the fight against the French and the Scottish. They'd not been against, largely against, uh, the king or his previous nobles uh, over the last 100 years. So all of a sudden to have this war break out and it costs so much, it will come back to haunt them. And I, one could say that it sets the stage for a lot of what comes, specifically the end of the 100 Years' War and also and sets up effectively the two sides during the War of the Roses. 
it of course we're a long way from that but at this point it's you can see it from here i would say argue uh regardless we're going to get more into this year of 1403 and then of course the high point, I could argue, of the Welsh Rebellion in 1404 over the next couple of episodes. Uh, until then, thank you all for listening. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, or on Facebook at facebook.com Welsh History Podcast. I do try and answer questions or comments as quickly as possible as long as I see them in time. Until next time, everyone, take care. Have a great day. Thank you so much for taking part in this podcast, and we'll see you all later. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.